Welcome friends, you're listening to Breakfast in the Ruins, a Michael Moorcock flavoured podcast. Michael Moorcock had a massive influence on the pop culture zeitgeist of the 60s and 70s, and his influence is shot right through fantasy fiction to this day, but, as any Moorcock aficionado will likely tell you, he's also been a defining presence in music too, for many people and bands. Since getting his first drum kit and then guitar in his early teens, Mike was deeply immersed in the music world, playing in multiple skiffle groups in the 50s, before settling on his chief passion and pursuit, writing the stories we love to this day, and supporting and promoting other talents through his editorial work. But music was never too far away, and he remained creatively involved with a number of high-profile rock bands, such as Hawkwind and Blue Oyster Cult, and influenced countless others over the years, including those emerging through the new wave of British heavy metal in the early 80s like the Tigers of Pantang and Diamond Head. That influence continues to manifest today, as evidenced by a number of projects available on creative spaces like Bandcamp, and we'll look at some of those in the future, including one by our very own patron Dave. More on that next show. For now though, we're taking a look at the most obvious collaboration that Mike made in the 70s, with the busy and extremely varied output of the British band Hawkwind, and we'll be doing that with writer Ian Abrahams. And later, Loz will pop in to talk about his contribution to the Moorcock music crossover. So, sit back, crank up the space rock, and join us in Derry and Tom's. <laughs> We're back in Derry and Tom's, virtual Derry and Tom's, of course. And today, my guest is Ian Abrahams, writer, biographer, lover of space rock, counterculture, um, runs the No Star Unturned blog, and is a Hawkwind biographer who wrote a book called Sonic Assassins. Ian, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Yeah, I'm really nice to uh, to be on and have a chat. Yeah, it's it's. Um, I've been wanting to touch on Moorcock and music ever since we started this and I think we've occasionally mentioned it and and Keck W and I discussed it very very briefly on the last show but it's really fantastic to get someone on the show who has that investment in uh, of course when we talk about Moorcock and music the first thing that comes to people's minds generally is Hawkwind even though of course he's interacted with other bands as well and written with Bloistical and various other bits and things but the biggie the biggie for most people is Hawkwind so what I generally ask all of our new guests is how did you come across Moorcock in the first place? Was it through well, Hawkwind or other means? I think it's really interesting, actually. I was thinking about this over the last few days. And although I've not read extensively of Mike Moorcock's work, I've read quite a bit. But I sort of edged up to Moorcock in the same way as I edged up to Hawkwind in a way. And they sort of crossed over in, 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 um, in, in a sense because... I came to the work of Mike Moorcock not through any of his stories or through any of his novels or through his work with Hawkwind, but I can remember very vividly being 13 or 14 and a Sunday afternoon trip to uh, my local beach, which would be Perranporth in Cornwall, where there was a uh, secondhand bookstore sitting on the uh, car park. <laughs> and I picked up a couple of issues and I probably paid about 10p each for them, but a couple of issues of New Worlds magazine. Mm. And I remember them very vividly. One was uh, issue 158, which is the one with the Roger Zelazny 
um, Love is an Imaginary Number, I think it's called, story, is, is the cover one. Yeah. And it has Charles Platt's uh, dystopian rock and roll sci-fi environmental crossover story, The Failures, in it, which felt really edgy and exciting when you were 13 or 14. Yeah. Um, and from there, I sort of span off into reading Sir Michael Moorcock. So I'd read a little bit of Jerry Cornelius when I was a teenager, and I read Behold the Man, which again, <laughs> like Charles Platt in uh, in that Moorcock edited magazine, just felt edgy. Mm. Uh, and I haven't read it for years, and I was looking at it the other day and thinking, I must get this from my Kindle and have a read of it again. Mm. Because I have one of the British paperback editions, Panther uh, editions, I guess. Um, and for years afterwards, was looking for a copy of Breakfast in the Ruins, which I finally found an American paperback in the much missed uh, Forever People shop in um, in Bristol, in Park Street in Bristol, uh, which to go up in the eighties for Hawkwing gigs. Um, so I sort of got to understand Mike Moorcock and what he was all about. Uh, and at the same time, I was gradually edging into Hawkwinds because I used to go to, uh, and I guess this would be, I was 16, 17, 18. I used to go to gigs at the Snorstall Cornwall Coliseum, um, and uh, which was a huge venue on the beach in Snorstall. Um, no, long gone now. But um, my cousin used to drive. This is the days, of course, I was too young to drive or just learn to drive. And he had copy of the Hawkwind album Live 79 as his cassette it was his cassette of choice for going to gigs and I'd heard of Hawkwind and I sort of knew about Silver Machine but I wasn't you know I didn't have any records and it, it, they'd sort of passed me by a bit um, but he was playing Live 79 and I got really excited about it and that sort of grungy punk crossover mm -hmm. that wasn't quite what I thought Hawkwind were all about but it was shot down in the night and it was Spirit of the Age and it was Motorway City so I was getting really excited about that. And at the same time, the BBC had their little documentary series about science fiction writers that I think came out about 1980, um, Time Out of Mind. And the first one right. was the Michael Moorcock uh, edition of that, um, which had a little bit of mention of Hawkwind. And as I recall, a clip of the promo film for Silver Machine that's known as the Top of the Pops clip, but it's, it's actually not a BBC film, it's a 14 clip. Um, and this all joined up. So I was sort of understanding Mike Moorcock and, and reading about New Worlds, finding copies in secondhand shops and understanding that whole thing with, um, you know, it, its relevance in the counterculture in the 1960s. Yeah. Uh, and at the same time, I was discovering Hawkwind and I was buying um, records like Sonic Attack had just come out, uh, which, of course, Mike contributes lyrics to and does the vocals on coded languages so there was a sort of moment there where I was you know just after school age I was 17 18 19 and I was discovering Mike Moorcock's work and I was discovering Hawkwind almost on parallel lines in, in a way of, of finding that they were both you know, even though Mike is, you know, really known for the Elric stuff and the, you know, dances on the edge of time and, you know, as, as a fantasy writer as well as a science fiction writer. But, you know, Mike always says that Hawkwind's best stuff is urban. It's about the city. Mm. And some of the stuff that I liked about New Worlds was that way as well. So I was sort of joining up their 
relevance to the underground and the counterculture and getting excited and reading about it, you know, so I was, you know, following the history of Hawkwind and also, you know, understanding the history of New Worlds and its publication yeah. of Bug Jack Barron, it's banning by WH Smith, it's rescued by the Arts Council, all that stuff when you were 18 and 19 and reading about the history of this felt really, uh, you know, really provocative and appealing. So, yeah. uh, so, so my interest in, in both had that parallel thing of discovering that you know the interconnectedness between the two that must be it's really exciting for a teenager isn't it because that making those discoveries and those connections and having those little epiphanies is one of the fun things about reading Moorcock because I think most people I talked to read them all completely out of order yeah <laughs> if you try and apply any kind of order for example to the Elric sequence it's pretty difficult and, and no matter how you do it and no matter how you carve it it can be jarring well, I think people you... like that, though, don't they? Because they do. you, know, you yeah. get the same thing with the Sherlock Holmes fans, where they try and piece yeah. together and end up saying that some of the stories are can't be part of the canon because they won't fit in any <laughs> timeline right. and stuff. Yeah. And I would imagine people do the same thing on some of Mike's uh, work that has that uh, interconnected web of uh, oh yeah absolutely. relationships to each other. And I, you know, and I'm not really well read on Mike's stuff, but you know, I've read read Elric, I've read Jerry Cornelius. Um, most recent thing I read of his was The Whispering Swarm. Yeah. Um, and so, so he's always been there in the background, and I've always liked his work. Yeah. And so, when I interviewed him for my book, you know, that was a yeah. real thrill. You know, and it was only it was an email interview. You know, I've never spoken to him in person, but to actually be corresponding by email um, for the book, and then for a few little things I wrote afterwards for Record Collector, it's just such a thrill that this was the guy who was editing New Worlds. Mm. This is the guy who wrote Behold the Man, and he and he's taken an interest and. Um, when my Hawkwind book came out, he name-checked it in a review of the year he did for a website. And, Fair you know, enough. for me, in small town Cornwall, you know, and nobody to be recognised by Michael Walcock. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. It's it started to kind of fall into place a little bit as to, as to how you came across the podcast. Because I think I think you said when we first communicated that somebody had given you um, our business card. I was on a, um, yeah, radio interview in... Um, community radio thing in Falmouth um and uh basically talking about Hawkwind and also a book I wrote on the free festivals culture called Festivalized Um, we did a little uh an hour of chatting about Hawkwind and playing some Hawkwind and some here and now and uh and some Hall and Oates is my guilty pleasure but (laughs) (laughs) um and at the end Lou the presenter gave me uh gave me a business card and said oh you ought to find out about this so, the, curi- uh, the curious thing about that is we went to Penzance on holiday in March because Phil's um, brother is down there uh-huh. and his family. So we went down to Penzance for a week and spent some time with them as well. I think they're somewhere around Helston. I can't remember the exact name of the village. But we were, we, we went to a laundrette to dry some clothes because we were there in March. The weather wasn't great. So we did, we did some washing. This is terribly exciting podcast. <laughs> <laughs> podcast Cutting information. Edge. But Cutting it's essential, it's essential information. <laughs> And um, we went to a laundrette to dry some clothes, and there was a there was a cork board on the wall, and I had one card in my wallet, and I stuck it on the cork board, and somehow that made its way. Somehow that card got to me. Somehow that card got to you. Well, one card you are, I mean, in Cornwall we, we on, a, about... on a laundrette wall <laughs> in Penzance. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. Isn't that amazing? Yeah, that's uh, that's that's quite quite crazy. But well, you wouldn't believe it. You, you know, wouldn't well, believe it. The moonbeam roads work in very, very strange ways. <laughs> so thanks to that DJ friend of yours, 
it's uh, it's it's worked out quite nicely. Yeah, exactly. So, how do you go from being a Harkwind fan as a teenager to writing about Harkwind, writing a biography? Um, I think because when I was younger, I wanted to be a journalist, and that that was never a a. I think I didn't apply myself very hard at school, and. Um, Therefore, it was It ended up for different reasons, not being a path I took. Um, but I always had that thing, you know. I used to do comics fanzines in the nineteen seventies. I'd, uh, you know, my where my dad worked, they had a, you know, one of those um, stencil printer machines, Gestetner or, or whatever they were called. Yeah. Um, and I used to produce a little comics fanzine that I'd run off fifty comic, uh, fifty copies of, and send out to people. And I was. You know, so I was, re- and I was re- always receiving comics fanzines and um, science fiction fanzines. So I was, you know, really keen on that, and was was contributing to to a lot of the comics fanzines that were around in the in the mid to late seventies. Um, so there was a burning desire of a sort to do some writing, uh, and in the eighties, you know, had had this idea I'd like to review music and stuff, and uh, I wrote a review of. I think it was one of the live Hawkwind albums that had come out and sent it to Sounds newspaper, uh, who replied and said, uh, oh, yeah, not what we're looking for, but uh, keep in touch about music in your area. And uh, I, for whatever reason, uh, took it as a resounding no and didn't try again for decades to write anything. (laughs) And then, bizarrely, because it's not very rock and roll, um, I wrote couple of three advice pieces for various accountancy magazines. Now, I told you it wasn't very rock and roll. <laughs> um, it's about and, as rock and roll as a laundrette. Yeah, about as rock and roll as a laundrette, exactly. Yeah. And I, I just, the idea of wanting to be a writer never went away. Um, so I ended up, you know, working in accountancy and, you know, just always harboring this, wouldn't it be great if I wrote something? So I had this quite wacky idea in hindsight, although things have changed and print on demand would have made it not such a wacky idea these days, but in the early, uh, in the early 2000s, it was more wacky an idea that I could write a book on Hawkwind and I could publish it myself and sell it at gigs. Wouldn't that be a really good thing to do? Cause nobody had written a book on Hawkwind. Yeah. Um, so I wrote a couple of sample chapters from things I researched and sent it to uh, Chris Tate who was Hawkwind's manager and, and is now Dave Brock's wife, and said, oh, I really want to write this book on Hawkwind. Uh, here's a couple of sample chapters. Can I get an interview sort of thing? Um, and was very surprised to receive a reply saying, uh, Dave thought it was all right, but he remembers it differently in some places. Why don't you come and have lunch with us and have a chat? So I drove up from Cornwall to Devon, had lunch with them, did a bit of an interview with no experience of interviewing anybody whatsoever, um, but did this interview and uh, they said, oh, that's very good. Well, the rest of the band are uh, rehearsing at my place. So why don't you come and say hello to Alan and Richard as it was then? Yeah. So we drove up into uh, into the hills around uh, where Dave lives and, and went to his uh, his place and sat in his uh, milking shed studio and uh, met Alan Davy and Richard Chadwick and did some interviews. And it sort of took on a bit of life of its own. 
because Dave had scrapbooks of photos and stuff and said, well, you know, I can give you access to this. And then I got interviews with people like Nick Turner and I made contact with various ex-band members and Mike Moorcock, for example, hmm. Phil Franks, who had taken lots of photography of the band in the early days and worked with Barney Bubbles on some of the concepts for the Hawkwing log in, in Search of Space. And it sort of grew and grew in, in that respect. So suddenly the wacky idea of writing a book and publishing it myself seemed not quite fit for purpose and and so I took myself off to the lo local Waterstones and I had a look through and st uh, at the music section as to who was publishing what found a book on craft work that was published by a company called SAF and sent them the manuscript as my first attempt to pitch a book to a publisher I got a phone call a couple of weeks later saying yeah let's go in advance we'll do it <laughs> Wonderful. which was quite startling in its in its own way um and so there i was with a book contract having never written anything longer than a thousand words for a accountancy magazine or stuff for fanzines many many years previously and uh unfortunately i had uh, had a really good mate of mine who was both a fiction writer and a non-fiction writer and wrote um tv tie-ins, uh, Doctor Who novels and uh, program guides and that sort of thing. So he sort of read each chapter as I went along and, um, and th th there was a great one where I'd written at length about New Worlds, WH Smith, Arts Council, Bug Jack Barron, all that stuff to get a phone call from him saying, Ian, I can tell you know lots and lots and lots about New Worlds, but this is a book about Hawkwings. Yeah. And so it all got cut in the end. Um, <laughs> and uh, and he lived uh, and still does live in Newcastle. And uh, when the book was finished, the sort of fortnight before it was due to the publishers, I went up and uh, I think at the time the publishers had contracted like 120,000 words and I had about 160,000. And we sat in his uh, flat in Newcastle with a bottle of Stilichnia with the snow coming down <laughs> outside in the middle of winter and just read it out loud and cut yeah. 40,000 words, you know. And uh, the fact that I managed to produce a book that was that, that needed minimum editing from the publishers was all down to my friend Keith Topping, who did, uh, did the sterling work of being a published writer and knowing what bear, bear pits I was, or bear traps I was falling into. Yeah, and 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 made it okay, you know. So that was, uh, so that was how I got into writing about Hawkwind. You know, yeah. a wacky idea of publishing it myself. Now, of course, it came full circle because SAF Publishing, who were who published a really great catalogue of of books on music, and seemed to be no longer publishing anymore. So the the rights effectively had come back to me a few years ago, and. Um, and this time around, rather than looking for another publisher, I took the advantage of Amazon Create Space and did my own print-on-demand version and yeah. learned how to create a printable file and how to lay it out and and rewrote it top to bottom because I was then a 15 years better writer and yeah. uh, and came up with a second edition that I was you know was much happier with in terms of being able to, to correct things, smooth out some errors, smooth out the writing a little bit add to it with lots of great stuff I'd had over the years since when I've been writing about Hawkwind for Record Collector and Vive La Rock and Shindig and places like that and, yeah. and, and beef it up into the 
into the new edition. So what started out, as I say, as a wacky idea of self-publishing via SAF, who took a chance on me, came full circle a couple of years ago to self-publishing the second edition. Yeah. So, I mean, that, that's a an amazing kind of first step into the world of kind of biographying. That's a terrible adjective. But, but writing a, a biography for a band. What 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 was it? Why Hawkman? Sorry, why Hawkwind? Why Hawkwind? Because they'd always been my favourite band since I heard Live '79 uh, yeah. on on the road to the Sonostal Coliseum. And I'd seen them a lot over the years then. So, you know, I'd seen them at Sonostal. And then in the 80s, my, my friend and I used to regularly go to Coston Hall mm. or the Hippodrome occasionally, Hippodrome for the Black Sword Tour, bringing it back to Mike Moorcock's stuff. Mm. But generally, Coston Hall, we, so we were, we'd become traveling Hawkwind fans because, you know, the thing about Hawkwind gigs is, you, you know, they're, they're well attended, but they're yeah. well attended by the same people <laughs> wherever you go. You know, there's a big traveling fan contingent but we used to go to bristol occasionally we go to london and stuff to see them and so they were very much my very much my favorite band beyond beyond all others mm. um and so you know had a burning desire to write and it, it was a, an itch that i had to to scratch yeah. um and if i was going to do a book on a band who was it going to be well it was going to be hawkwind because nobody else had done it i mm. mean there were a couple of things published but they were you know um, without being despised, they were beefed up fanzines in a way, um, yeah. and nobody had commercially published a, a biography of Hawkwind. So, and then it was just the treat of actually meeting all these wonderful characters. Um, and of course, the thing about Hawkwind is that you know that there's been a lot of um, toing and froing within the membership over the years. So everybody wants to give their point of view. Yeah. So it's very easy to get interviews. And you had to moderate that a little bit because I wasn't writing a news of the world style book. I was writing yeah. a book that was really trying to say, yeah, look how much I love this band, you know? Yeah. So there was lots of stuff that I heard and I just left on the cutting room floor as it were metaphorically, you know, because it just wasn't the sort of thing I was, I was interested in, in writing about at the same time, much miss Carol Clark was writing the saga of Hawkwind. So we'd sort of hit on the same thing concurrently as it were. And we did talk a bit um, during the time that uh, I was writing Sonic Assassins. And she was writing Saga, mm. um, and th and this is how this is how amateurish I was to start out with because I'd given Carol a couple of contacts um, to progress her book, and she gave me Lemmy's phone number in Los Angeles, <laughs> and I'm sitting at work with a piece of paper with Lemmy's phone number on it, thinking, "You don't just ring up Lemmy. You don't just ring up Lemmy," and I never did. That's quite I had, though, you know. though, isn't it? <laughs> it's, it? It was a very generous... And, and Carol, who'd written for Melody Maker and, and had written masses of biographies of music and, and uh, uh, East End Gangsters was a rather big thing. That used to, she used to write uh, a lot of um, ghost-written autobiographies of gangsters and stuff. Mm. But for her to take me seriously and pass me on contact, and she was really good to me. When the books came out, we, we, we discussed with each other the, the reactions we'd got on them. And I was then breaking into writing to rec writing for Record Collector. Um, and I was tipped off. I'd done a little interview with Captain Sensible at a gig in Falmouth for a reissue that had come out. And I was tipped off by their reviews editor, Jake, at the time, who said, uh, I think the editor's looking for a 
15th anniversary, whatever it was, damned feature, why don't you pitch it? Um, so I did, and Carol very kindly then set me up with Brian, uh, Brian James and with Ratscabies to get interviews with them for the feature I was writing. So she was very, very kind to me and, and took me seriously where I was an amateur in a world that she was a very hard-bitten professional, you know, so that, that was really great. That's that's kind of a great level of generosity, isn't it? That's... I think so. I think she was, um, you know, my claim to fame, I always say my journalistic claim to fame was I had a boozy Soho lunch with Carol Clark once, yeah. um, but I couldn't keep up with her. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> but she's gone now and, you know, music writing's poorer for that because she was a great lady and, and very, very generous to, to somebody she could have looked on as a, you know, as an amateur and not bothered with. So, yeah. Uh, that was, you know, and so ironically, having picked on Hawkwind because nobody had done a book on Hawkwind, two came out within six months and yeah. I was first and she was second. Yeah. But they sort of fed off each other. And um, I'd said to the publisher in my naivety, won't that, uh, do you still want to do it? Now, you know, this other one's coming out. And he said, that's good news because, you know, the, the sales reps and the distributors will sit up and take notice and think something's going on here and they'll yeah. get behind both, you know. And yeah. I think that's what, what actually happened. Yeah. I mean, it must have been great for the band if nobody had told their story before, and then all of a sudden there, are, there are two people out there producing, you know, biographical information about them. It, it must have been fantastic for them, and there's there's no wonder they they were so um, communicative and and generous with you in terms of time. I, I I think so. I think it's it's tricky when you're a band at that level, maybe because you know they. You know, I've talked to Dave. Dave passed in the past about things he didn't agree with in in the first edition, and and I listened to some of that. And and in the second edition, I I rephrased some stuff and changed some stuff and kept some stuff where I didn't agree with. You know, but astounding sounds amazing music is is an album that he famously hates and I absolutely love. You know, and I wasn't going to change my view for it. You know, yeah. but uh, I think you know if you're Bruce Springsteen and somebody's publishing a book on you every month, that's one thing. If you're Hawkwind and nobody's published a book on you and two come out then there's two things about it one is isn't this great it uh, it validates us and another is well i don't agree with this and i don't agree with that and it becomes difficult you know yeah. but uh, but i you know i've always got on with them and uh, and 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 that's how i that's how i see that but i think that i think the interesting thing is and it's more to do with carol really because carol was writing for classic rock and, and places like that who were running excerpts from her book and because her book was an omnibus uh publication it had more visibility but I think that you know when I roll back before those books came out music press did not take Hawkwind seriously mm. you know and so even new studio albums might get a couple of couple of lines somewhere and suddenly you know Carol and I were rocking up at music magazines and wanted to write about Hawkwind and the yeah. books were out and suddenly there, there seemed to be a sea change over the years as to how Hawkwind's been perceived in the music press. Yeah. And I'm not saying that's all down to me and Carol, but I think we we struck a tone of saying, actually, you can take this band seriously and they do mean something and they do have a legacy and they have influenced punk and they have influenced rave mm. and they have influenced the festival scene. And so don't, don't laugh at them as, as being some sort of hippie dinosaur uh, band because, you know, they've always had a relevance, you know, when I interviewed people like Jello Biafra from the Dead Kennedys um, and, you know, various people who were involved in the rave scene and stuff. And, they, you know, they, they all came along and validated what uh, what the band was about. And so I think that it was the start of, 
you know the music press starting to take Hawken a little bit more seriously, which yeah. is you know which is what they, what they should be doing. Yeah, I think rightly now that their their first half dozen albums are kind of commonly considered classics, aren't they? But you know back 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 in the early eighties or in the, the mid eighties, I think you know in, in my social circles, unless you were a Moorcock fan, Hawkwind were the people who did Silver Machine and had the Naked Girl on stage. Yeah, and that, and they've they're always going to live with that uh, that tag, aren't they? You know, and um, which is fine. I imagine Silver Machines looked after Dave Brock very well over yeah. the years. You know, quite rightly so. You know, if you've got a publishing credit on something like that, it's always going to come and uh, and uh, and help you out in your old age. And there's nothing wrong with that. I think that's uh, you know that, that that that's great. And actually, I mean, I saw it the other day. I was watching. Um, one of the now TV channels mm. on on Sky, and it came out. They were doing 1972, and I thought, well, I bet Silver Machine pops up in a minute, and up pops the um, the Silver Machine clip that, that you know that ran on top of the pops in 1972. Yeah, and you can see, and I've often said it, but you can see when you watch that, a bit like Bowie doing Starman on top of the pops, or the next decade Morrissey turning up with the gladioli hanging out of his back pocket. If you were wired up, if you were 13 or 14 in 1972 and wired up a certain way and you saw that promo film, that's going to change your life, you know? Yeah. And it just, you know, it's still fantastic to this day. So even though I would say half of the gigs I've been to of Hawkwind, they haven't played Silver Machine. Um, and even though I sort of agree with... Um, Frenchie from Flickknife, who says, you know, the only Hawkwind song like Silver Machine is Silver Machine, and it's not typical. Yeah. Um, you know, it's still not a bad albatross to have around your neck, is it? No, no, certainly not. I think. I but think you're not. right. I mean, you know, in music terms, they did it, particularly in the 80s. They they dropped out of the mind's eye, didn't they? They became that band. It was, you know, it was Tasia, it was Lemmy, it was Silver Machine, it was yeah. the first half a dozen albums. And, uh, you know, so, you know, I just think that people wanting to write about them in this century has, has just added a little bit of respectability to it again. And, yeah. and I think that's well-deserved, but I think that's, you know, as I say, I think I, you know, hopefully I've contributed a little bit to that, but certainly Carol with the saga of Hawkwind was a big driver on that. I think. Yeah. Yeah. So re reading Sonic Assassins, I, I always love the origins of these things and I always particularly love reading about Eel Pie Island. Oh yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Because it's just, you know, if 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 there's ever anything that makes you feel like you were born in the wrong decade, it's reading about Eel Pie Island and what an experience that must have been. And of course, in the early fledgling days of Hawkwind, they were involved in all of that counterculture scene. Yeah, and, and I think one of the fascinating things about about Hawkwind, if you look at them today, they're like the prog rock version of or the psychedelic rock version of the Fall, except you know, rather than that one car figure, they've got a couple who, who alternately do and don't get on. <laughs> yes. Yeah, <laughs> over the years. Yes. And that kind of causes the complications. Well, but, uh, yeah, I, th I think, you know, it is a good analogy, though, because Dave really is the core figure. And, and, yeah. I, and I get what you're saying. Um, but I think I talked about this the other day in a different context, because the next thing I wrote after Sonic Assassins was a book on the Waterboys mm. called Strange Boat, Mike Scott and the Waterboys. And the Waterboys is very, very analogous to Hawkwind in the way that this revolving cast of characters have, you know, are all on, on the, the outskirts of this one guy's vision. Yeah. So Mike Scott and the Waterboys, Dave Brock and Hawkwind, who brings people in and then they go and maybe they come back. And the Waterboys have something like 80, <laughs> 80 or 90 <laughs> 
current and past members and Hawkwind's right. a little bit like that you know one person and the interesting thing is that every Waterboys album is different from the previous yeah. and different from the next and Hawkwind are like that as well yeah so it's about that really clever thing that Dave Brock and Mike Scott are able to do maybe Marky Smith as well they're not really familiar enough with the Fool's work to, to know that but but being able to hear the sound of the moment and bring together the right people to create that sound mm. of course that always leads to disappointment when you don't want them for the next thing yeah and that's happened in Hawkwind I'm, I'm putting that mildly and that's happened in the Waterboys in perhaps a, a nicer way but people you know there's people who feel like they're a little bit um discarded as it were you know so I, th I think that's uh you know and that's a natural thing when you when you get yourself into that sort of situation I guess but uh there's a great analogy in that in terms of you know one person hearing the sound he wants to wants to and, and and mike talks about that doesn't he mike says that uh you know his involvement with hawkwind over the years has often been to create a starting point yeah for dave brock and then dave brock would go off on a completely different tangent but it was the starting point that he he'd sprung from yeah so how how does mike murcock get involved in with hawkwind where does it come from I think it's um, he goes to uh, he goes to a gig. He can't. Re I, I I I looked this up in in my book, and I don't think he can remember exactly where it was. But he goes to a London gig in the company of uh, John John Trucks from um, Friends Magazine, and possibly also M. John Harrison, hmm. and uh, meets Dave Brock and Nick Turner, who of course are already huge Mike Moorcock fans, right? And uh, ask him to be involved. So he's got. Uh, Sonic Attack and Use Your Armour and stuff like that to read and we'll turn up and, and read his poetry uh, under the West Way for the free gigs in Ladbroke Grove and stuff like that and, and Mike is in Ladbroke Grove and all this counterculture is happening around him and he has a similar experience to Dave Brock in terms of how he gets into music in the first place playing banjo in in coffee bars and stuff you know yeah. so though they you know that the, their stories don't converge until he goes to this Hawkwind gig they have the same sort of experiences of of turning up and playing in coffee bars and, and things like that through the 60s yeah um and so that he becomes part of that melting pool of people who were circulating around the band so that would be barney bubbles the great graphics designer uh phil franks who took a lot of the photography and robert calvert who filled some of the role that Mike also did of being the guy who comes on and, and declaims this poetry. Sometimes is sometimes it's his own poetry. Mm. Sometimes it's Mike, uh, Mike's work that he'll read. He might read a Gunter Grass poem. Um, he might find some other esoteric thing that he wants to uh, declaim from the stage. And Mike will stand back and let him do it because Mike's got this great career as an editor and a, as a writer. And Bob Calvert is trying to find his way as as a sort of uh poet and and would-be singer musician type thing so mike stands back and lets him lets him do it but it was always on the periphery there of, of joining in and bob has uh, bob calvert has uh, various different psychological problems that means he's not available all the time so if there's a gig that he's supposed to be at and he can't make it maybe mike will go and do it instead yeah. so mike's very generous and stands back and and and, and let, let's Bob get on with a lot of it, but he's always there as a presence, you know, at the Windsor Free Festival or uh, at Hammersmith Odeon through the years, and uh, and then and in sessions for Warrior on the Edge of Time, which yeah. was supposedly the eternal champion, but he's a very, very loose, uh, and, and a good example of, 
there's Mike Moorcock's starting point and Dave Brock's gone off on a different tangent, but yeah. Mike has come in and read a couple of the poems and has, uh, has, has contributed the lyrics to uh, Kings of Speed, which I think existed beforehand. And then, then Dave gave it a new tune and inspires Nick Turner's writing of Dying Seas. And, and at the same time, he's doing New World's Fair, which actually I was listening yeah. today and is a much more cohesive record in my mind. Yeah. I never get the, the great outpouring of what, what a classic warrior is. Um, and I always think it's not as good as the things around it. It's not as good as Hall of the Mountain Grill. Yeah. And it's not as fresh as amazing, uh, Astounding Sounds Amazing Music. Um, but I was listening to New World's Fair, which I don't listen to a lot, but I put it on today and I thought, you know what, this isn't Hawkwind. This is more Mott the Hoople, David Bowie, but it, as a dystopian thing, it hangs together much better than Warrior does. Yeah, and I, I suppose for people listening, we should point out that New World's Fair was was essentially Moorcock's album, wasn't it? Yes, it was. It yeah. was released under the name the Deep Fi Michael Moorcock and the Deep Fix, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah, and a couple of guys that, that are credited with with him as the Deep Fix, uh, and then various different Hawkwind uh, musicians playing on it. I think Dave Brock plays guitar on it, uh, and Simon House turns up with his violin or his Mellotron or, or what have you. I think Alan Powell plays on it. Um, I think Nick Turner was supposed to play on it and maybe did play on it, but got mixed out uh, in the final mix, I think, is the legend on that one. <laughs> um, but... Uh, but yeah, I, I think it was, you know, I was surprised again listening to it today, just how cohesive it is, you know, mm. and you, you think, is there a storyline? And I'm not sure there there really is, but it's really great dystopian. Nick Turner in the sleeve notes for the esoteric edition says that he thinks it's inspired by, uh, is it Dreamland at Margate, uh, the old funfair there? And he can see Mike wandering through and seeing all this dystopian, and yeah. you know, on the edge of time stuff happening, you know? And it does feel like that. And it is, you know, I think it does. It feels like a Bowie album or a Mott the Hoople album. And, yeah. you know, in that sense, it, it feels like it's of its time. But it's a little bit unfairly un overlooked, I think. You know, whereas Warrior is this great classic that I that I just don't get. I like it individually, but I don't like it as an album. You know? Yeah, I came across Hawkwind and um, the Deep Fix uh, New World's Fair album probably around about the same time because... I very much got into Moorcock first and, and, you know, didn't really discover the connection with Hawkwind until years later because there was no internet in those days, of course. Mm. But one day I was in Sydney Scarborough's record shop in Hull in the basement where all the rock music was and I saw the cover of The Chronicle of the Black Sword. I was like, what? And this is, one of the, again, one of these brilliant things about being a Moorcock fan pre-internet days where you suddenly make these connections and things fall into place. You think, what is going on here? Um, but a, a while later I got a copy of... Um, I didn't buy it. Probably because I didn't have enough pocket money on me or whatever it was. <laughs> and uh, a while later, I got um, New World's Fur. And I got a Hawkwind compilation. You remember the days of those terrible early days of CD? And you'd get compilations, which were they weren't best ofs. They were pretty random. And they would try and convince you that it was actually a studio album. And sometimes oh, yes. and there were re-recordings by, yes. by some of the band members. Yeah, I, yeah. I got this Hawkwind compilation. It had a couple of it had Quark, Strangers and Charm on it, and a couple of other bits and bobs. And I had New World's Fur, and I preferred New World's Fur hmm. um, because it was it was it was more consistent. And of course, if you get a a crappy Hawkwind compilation, which is all over the place, yeah, all different get, eras and and yeah. and various different outtake stuff that, that yeah. that's uh, that's got a a live the, There's a lot of it. <laughs> it. Had a live version of Silver Machine on it. I think at the same time on the same day I got a, a 
um, a Moody Blues one as well, um, just because it had, I can't remember the track, there's a track off um, Days of, oh, I can't remember the name of the album, anyway, um, I, I picked that up and I, and I picked up the other two and I got an Alan Price live album, which mm-hmm. was an unofficial, I think an unofficial bootleg, but uh, it was it was almost exactly the same track list as the famous studio produced and, and published Alan Price live album from the late seventies with the big band backing, but it was a different recording, and it was, yeah. it was it was like a really cheap label, with no proper booklet. So I would get these you'd know, get these things in these crappy yeah yeah shops, yeah these cheap shops in Hullway get a CD for two quid. Um, which even in those days was was pretty cheap. So yeah, I really liked New World's Fur, and I must say it is quite a while since I've listened to it. I really should go back and listen to it. Um, but I, I think, I mean, I know this is probably heretical, but I think I'd rather listen to that than Chronicle of the Black Sword. Well, I think you know we, the thing about Chronicle of the Black Sword is that you know people like the studio album or they like the live album. Mm. And if you like the live album, you're going to find the studio album a little bit underdone. Yeah. And a little bit overproduced, yeah. if that isn't a contradiction in terms. But of course, what it misses that the the live double has is Hugh Lloyd Langton's great songs, Moon Glum and Dreaming mm. City, mm. for a start. And it does miss this, this studio album misses the dynamics of the of the live album. So it is, you know, it's a bit it's a bit of a cliche in Hawkwind fandom terms. But that that live album is really the capture of the Black Sword concept. Much so, more than the studio album, I think. Yeah, one of the questions I was going to ask you at some point was actually, what is the definitive Moorcock and Hawkwind collaboration? Is it that live album? I think it probably... I'm going to be her- heretical and say it probably is. Uh, lots of people who are Hawkwind fans will be listening to this and going, it's Warrior on the Edge of Time, what are you mm. on about? <laughs> but I think, it, you know, I think that uh, that that live, that, that tour, of course, Mike appeared a few times on that tour, you know, not not every night, but he appeared at Hammersmith a couple of nights, and I think he might have appeared at Preston. I might be making that up, yeah. uh, but I think he appeared two or three times on the tour, and then it's captured on the uh, on the video of the tour as well, with Mike doing the, you know, the opening narration in his uh, dinner jacket and dicky bow tie, <laughs> and famously says that, he, or at least he says to me on the. Um, on the email interview I did with him for the book that he'd taken a load of uh, Elric paperbacks to distribute to the audience and liberally distributed them at the end of the gig only to see them ripped to pieces by people trying to get their hands on them. Um, so I think that, uh, I think that live album is, is a real pinnacle of their, their work together, um, particularly because you get Mike coming on and doing his bits. I mean, he's not on the original release of the album for contractual reasons, Um, but I think he has been reinstated on some of the the additions that came later. But you certainly see him on the the video, and uh, uh, I think it's just, uh, I I think that's a great, um, because, you know, although there's a few Hawkwind standards, peppered in the set you know you get masters of the universe and you get um assault and battery but it's largely a new set you know so they're going out and playing a set of songs that nobody's heard before yeah uh all wrapped up and inspired by the elric novels yeah um and clearly you know different members of the band had done a lot of work on that had read had read around it and uh, and come up with a storyline and uh you know lyrics that were relevant so yeah. uh 
I think it, it, it captured what they were trying to do much better than Warrior did as a uh, supposed eternal champion concept album. Yeah. I mean, kind of, I suppose, going back to when he, when he first had that contact with them and, and, and first started to collaborate with them, what kind of impact do you think he had on, on their music? Because we've mentioned that Hawkwind, um, to, to all intents and purposes, probably got some pretty rough treatment at the hands of the press. And I think the there's, there's a certain kind of sense amongst the serious that a band that hook up with a fantasy author and do poetry on stage and and you know grand concept albums when prog rock of course was becoming quite something of a bloated joke with yeah you know triple albums and and Emerson Lake and Palmer with their three lorries each and, <laughs> and all that business. What kind of impact do you think Moorcock had on Harkwin? Because yeah, well, when you put it like that on paper, it doesn't sound very good, does it? But it, it reminds me a little bit of like you know Spinal Tap's plans for Kinky Jack. Yes, yeah, and 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 the Chronicles of the Black Sword could could have easily have tipped over into being Spinal Tap in the way it was presented on stage. That's for sure. But I think that Moorcock validated their their counterculture crossover. I think he gave them some direction. Not all of the direction, because some of it came from Barney Bubbles, some of it very much came from Bob Calvert. But he gave them a, a, a direction where their stuff was, rel- you know, things like psychedelic warlords, sick of politicians, harassment and laws, all that yeah. sort of stuff, feels very new world. So I think that uh, I think that new world's ethos permeated what Hawkwind were doing, and I think that's why when punk came along. They were the ones that weren't dismissed, yeah, you know, and so maybe it was a little bit of a guilty pleasure for a while from somebody from the Stranglers or the Buzzcocks yeah. or or Susan Ivanchis or whoever, but Jello Biafra, particularly at Dead Kennedys, but all of them there would say, you know, I took something from Hawkwind, it might be Dave Brock's guitar playing, it might be yeah. Bob Calvert's work, but it certainly also was the, their involvement with Mike Moorcock and yeah. the, the, the counterculture kudos and credibility that that mike has not only from his own writings but because of new worlds yeah i mean it's, it's easy to forget now isn't it when you're talking about a guy who was just about to turn 81 who's published over 100 fantasy novels it's it's difficult to appreciate for people who weren't around at the time just how counterculture he was and just how close to that stuff he was but also i think what we find whenever we look at mocock as well is through no matter what he's doing at any given time he always has this community around him that he nurtures and he, and, he, and, and he did it with other writers. He made um, Jerry Cornelius a shared character for a period of time and gave people his blessings to write Cornelius short stories. And at the same time, he's kind of got this this community that he's moving in and out of related to music. And I was thinking about what you were saying earlier on about Jello Biafra, but there's um, a Ministry concert from the 90s where Ministry are playing their hard brand of Al Jurgensen's in industrial rock stroke metal behind a, a huge wire fence and the audience are absolutely rabid throwing bottles at the fence and bottles are smashing and scattering beer and glass all over the band and in the middle there's Jello Biafra reading poetry <laughs> <laughs> and it's it's like Harkwind and Michael Moorcock times Mad Max and that's, I, I think, that's that ministry uh, concert and absolutely he'd have got that from Mike Moorcock and Bob Calvert yeah it could because you know Jello Baff was not only a, a fan, but he was a fan who'd go to gigs when they played in America and stuff. So I wouldn't have seen Mike Moorcock with um, with Hawkwind in America because I don't think Mike ever appeared at any American Hawkwind gigs. But yeah. certainly would have seen Bob Calvert, and Bob was very influenced by Mike. Yeah, 
Um, so, you know, I think there is an absolute direct line to, to what you're saying there to, to Hawkwind. And, and that's why they continue to have been relevant to that era that I grew up in, because that, that bloated prog rock thing that you described, the ELPs and the Genesis and the Yeses, were not my music. My music was the Pistols and the Clash. Yeah. Clash would, of course, taken away from Hawkwind and Mike, that whole lab book Grove ethos. Yeah, that's what Joe Strummer and Mick Jones would have taken from that. Yeah, um, they've got that wonderful. I don't know if rough edge is the right way of describing it, but they've, they've got a, a slightly chaotic fringe around their music. So, uh, Psychic Warlords is probably my favorite Hawkwind track. I absolutely love it, but I must confess, Hawkwind are one of those bands where um, can I listen to a full album by them in one sitting? Maybe, maybe not. But there are specific tracks by them that I absolutely love. I absolutely love Psychic Warlords. I'm probably with you on Warriors the Ed- Warrior on the Edge of Time. I think it's a little bit patchy. Yeah. But it's got great stuff on it. It's got great yeah. tracks on it. Oh, yeah. In- individually, there's some, there's some wonderful stuff on it, but the production's yeah. quite poor and the concept doesn't hang together. So if you're going to do a concept album, do a concept album. It, yeah. it, it sort of isn't. It, yeah. it doesn't do what it says on the tin. So yeah. uh, that's and, one of the weird it, things about Hawkwind, isn't there? There's, there's that whole pretentious thing about prog rock bands doing, I don't know, Kinky Jack with the Royal Philharmonic Orchestra or whatever. Um, but Hawkwind ne- never committed fully and never went there until Chronicle of the Black Sword. Yeah, true. Yeah. True. And, it, and Black Sword is, it, 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 it's almost Spinal Tap. It, yeah, it, it really is. I remember seeing it on the. By the time I they did it, it was the eighties. <laughs> I saw the last night of the tour. Me and my mate were at um, Bristol Hippodrome for the last night of the tour. I think we had like, the last couple of tickets that were available, and uh, and we loved it. But it could so easily have tipped over. Yeah. Into being that um, caricature of itself. They, they they just about got away with it. They just yeah. about got away with it. And yeah. and of course you don't get that sense on the on the albums, you know, with the studio album or the live album unit. When you see it live and see the photographs and the costumes and, and all that sort of stuff, you think, well they they, <laughs> they were on the edge there. They were on the nearly tipped over into parody. But yeah. uh, it's not but, quite King Arthur on ice. But and, and, but but you asked me about what um you know, one of the great moments of, of Mike and uh, and Hawkwind together, and the other one is Sonic Attack, because that album, um, the, the version of Sonic Attack on it isn't, uh, is, is far from my favourite, but that album with uh, Mike's vocals on Coded Languages and his lyrics on Lost Chances and that whole, I call it Concrete Cold War Hawkwind, uh, I, again, I found really appealing, and I think, you know, Mike had added quite a lot to that as well. Yeah. What about his collaborations with other bands? I, you know, the collaboration with Blue, 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 the collaboration with Blue, Blue, I can't say it. <laughs> you can fix that in a minute, can't you? The yeah. collaboration with Blue Oyster Cult completely passed me by. Yeah. Uh, I've never heard it. Um, I can't, uh, so I can't talk about it. One thing I must listen to soon is his work with uh, Don Falcone and Spirits Burning. Yeah, yeah. And they've got an album out in, in in the last couple of months that I uh, that I need to uh, need to get on my Christmas list because that mm. looks really fantastic. And Don had done some work previously with um, some demos that uh, that existed of Mike's work um, that uh, I thought was interesting. But uh, Hololands, isn't it? That's the new album by Spirits Burning. That's the Mike Moorcock crossover, if I, if yeah, I remember right. I think I remember that's what it's called. Was Hololands the first one? or Yeah, yeah, Hololands, because they did one last, they released one last year on the back end of the year before, so it's the second one they've done. 
Yeah. So I've got to, uh, I, I, I've sort of, I've been really busy this year, funnily enough. Mm. <laughs> Lock, lockdown has not uh, not eased my workload. So I've been really busy in a nine to five. But, mm. uh, and so a lot of stuff has passed me by, but that's on my list to uh, to have a listen to. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've got to admit, probably if, if, um, if I had to pick one favorite Michael Moorcock rock band um, collaboration, it would probably be Veteran of the Psychic Wars. Mm-hmm. I um, I blew always to cult. Yeah. Yeah. Um whereas the flip side of that is he did Black Blade with Blue Oyster Cult and I think it completely flips over into cheese ball. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well I'll have yeah. to I'll have to get on Spotify or wherever and try and uh, and try and get a listen to those because yeah. uh, those have passed me by over the years and and actually, in truth, I should have researched those for my Hawkwind book and it compared and contrasted, but I never did. So, yeah. uh, to my knowledge, he only did the two with uh, with um, Blue Oyster Cult, but um, Black Black Blade is is kind of too far towards the what we described earlier as as, as maybe just going a little bit too kinky, Jack. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Veteran of the Psychic Wars is just a really cracking track all the way around. Really, really good. In fact, I, I used it as the opening. The, the opening bars is the opening music for the podcast until I realised I might get pinged for a copyright. <laughs> yes, there is a danger it. there. There is a danger. Uh, replace it with my friend's band. I'll have so, to go and check it out. I'll have to go yeah. and check it out. Yeah, do so and let me know what you think. As yeah, well. we'll do. We'll it's, do. It's, it's that period of Bloister Cult where everything is, again, very clean. It's and it's very heavily produced. So it's it's not it's not rough and um, and kind of a little bit dangerous and reckless sounding like like the best Hawkwind stuff is from the 70s yes yeah yeah i say the best Hawkwind from the 70s i really love carry on sundown as well if i've got the name of that right hurry on sundown hurry on sundown yeah yeah, yeah it's uh it's a lovely sing-along track i was talking mm. to uh one of the interviews i did a few years ago was with uh and i'm gonna forget his name now the guy from cooler shaker oh, um mills. yeah crispian mills yeah and uh he'd uh he was saying oh, i used to play that as a busking tune Used to put the hat around and play "Hurry on Sundown," and it was a really good one to uh, to busk along to. I think they might have done that as a B side. I think they did. Yeah, I'm I think sure I've in the heard early days of that. Yeah. And much like their version of "Hush," it's a very clean, faithful, um, well produced, heavily produced. However, you want to put it, cover version. You know? mm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I was actually quite fond of Cooler Shaker up until he did his um, what was it his his Nazi fancy dress or, or whatever it is that got him in bother. Yeah, yeah, I'm not sure what that was. I, I was interviewing for an album called K2, which which I really liked and had some yeah. stuff that he reckoned was very pre festival influence. So uh, it was uh, it was a nice chat. Yeah, yeah, and I never really kind of got Cooler Shaker, and, and you know, they were in charts and they had a few singles, but then I got I got drunk in a heavy metal club. And they played "Hey Dude" on on these massive monitors, and I was absolutely shit first. <laughs> and I danced to "Hey Dude" like a lunatic. Um, I, think, I think this is how long ago. I think I was drunk on Copperhead cider. Oh my goodness! I, yeah, I don't think Copperhead cider has even existed for twenty years. Yeah. Um, it's so, gone yeah, away. But, but as a result, I've yeah, yeah. As a result, I was quite fond of Cooler Shaker for that reason. Yeah. So, so, what's next for you then? What are you working on at the moment? Um, I am, oh, well, the day job is very all-consuming because I work for the Horford Cornwall Theatre in Truro. I found my way to the uh, to the charity and cultural sector and I work for the Horford Cornwall uh, Theatre that's in the middle of a big capital rebuild project uh, with, uh, with intention to reopen uh, Autumn 21. So that's been, uh, working on that has been really consuming my 
headspace, but I do have an idea for a a book that might be called uh, No Star Unturned, like my blog, but yeah. it might be called No Star Unturned and might be subtitled Space Rock's Strangest Trips. <laughs> so I'm having a look at that at the moment. It's, it's a notion I'm playing with. It's probably... 21 albums because that's a nice number 21 yeah. albums by 21 different bands of the space rock genre and how uh how those things join up because space rock is 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 such a you know such a strange beast uh, i've said before that it can be the big industrial space freighter chugging down the spaceways or it can be dave brock's hand on the uh, on the solar winds and a you know in a solar yacht <laughs> Yeah. Uh, you know, and a light touch thing. So I'm really interested in the way that uh, that that space rock thing is developed. Nick Turner playing his flute in the Great Pyramid is suddenly, you know, creating the Sphinx album, then influenced uh, bands in America to do um, their own version of that. And then to get Nick over to play and Jane Weaver more recently, who's um, sampled stuff from Church of Hawkwinds yeah. and brought that into her music. So and other bands that I really like, Osrix, you know, what's what's the Osrix thing in the festival scene and what did they take from Hawkwind? Uh, and then bands like Wooden Ships and Moon Duo yeah. in America these days, um, you know, how they developed space rock. So I think, you know, trying to find the right angle for it to keep it fun, but also serious in a way might be the way to go so that's the thing that's on my mind at the moment it's uh space rock strangest trips uh i just gotta find the time to do it but yeah. that's uh that's the one that's on my mind at the moment in order to stimulate your thinking then i'm going to put you on the spot and for for people who love mocock and for people who love hawkwind and space rock and maybe prog rock what would be your five suggestions for them to explore outside of hawkwind Oh, I would definitely recommend uh, the... It's not a double album, it's two albums, but they run concurrent, uh, called Occult Architecture by Moon Duo from a couple of years ago. Mm -hmm. um, one album is heavy weather, winter stuff. One album's light and summery. And if you play the two together, you, you feel the season's changing. Yeah. Uh, and that's th those are a couple of records I play an awful lot. Really enjoying the new Mugstar album that came out uh, last month, I think. Um, I can't for the life of me remember what it's called, but I bought that on vinyl. It's the first thing I bought on vinyl for a while, uh, and I've been playing that. Um, so those are those those are two of my recommendations. Um, Jane Weaver's got a new album out next year. It's not Space Rock, but she is influenced by Hawkwind. Yeah, um, and I had a. Uh, promotional copy of that recently and i've started to get into that so uh jane weaver definitely uh, something that's of interest to people who like the sort of more uh electronica side of hawkwind that's typified by the church of hawkwind album from back in the early 80s yeah that would be that would be a hot tip for me uh and also a uh, carrie grace um listened to a lot of her stuff recently again she's not specifically space rock but she's She's in that whole Cosfest and um, Fruits de Mer record label type uh, environment of uh, of that really great little scene that's grown up around uh, space rock and um, little semi-free festival. Not a free festivals you pay to go in, but they yeah. have the free festivals vibe. Bands like Sendelica also uh, very uh, influential on that. But uh, 
those would be my hot, hot tips. So Mugstar, Moon Duo, Jane Weaver, Carrie Grace, and some Sendelica. <laughs> That's great. I'm going to look all those up once we're finished. So you know what, Ian? It's been absolutely great talking to you. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. Thank you yeah. so much. You know, you know what? That card on that laundrette corkboard um, has, has produced some some nice results for me. And we, we will be back down in Cornwall at some point when all of this plague has ended um, because we, we tend to go down there once a year. So hopefully we can do this again sometime, maybe even in person in a booth. Yeah, we can have a beer and set the world to rights. That would be really great. <laughs> yeah. Also, drop me a line after you've listened to the Spirits Burning albums because I'll do the same and maybe we can compare notes. Yeah, excellent. We will do. All right. That's brilliant. Cheers, Ian. Thanks Super. For Thank you very much. No problem. Cheers. Take a swig, swig of Doom Bar. I've, I've just poured this beer and it's uh, it's very... Very right. viscous. Hold that thought, because I'm going to put the Doom Bar aside. And I'm going to open my comedy beer as well. Yours is in a tin. Oh, motherfucker. Brilliant. Yeah, that may have been a crass error. Anyway, that aside, Brilliant. just as Ian yeah. Abrahams was going down in the lift from Derry and Tom's, who pops out but Loz with some stupid beer? <laughs> <laughs> as usual, yeah. So I've sat back down again, and uh, and Loz is here, and we're gonna we're gonna talk. Well, we're probably gonna mention beer in a second, but we're also gonna talk a little bit about music and giant can seeing as this is a music episode so Lars, what, what comedy beer have you just opened before i just accidentally drank some at disgusting well this one is a flying dog gonzo imperial porter ah. uh, rocking in at a 10 percenter Ooh. Ooh. and it's got it's got a quote from uh, hunter s thompson on the side bloody hippies it never got weird enough for me and that's probably the worst intonation I've ever heard of any quote. Right. But anyway, yeah. so uh, I've just taken a swig out of it, but I'll go for another one soon as we're uh, having a chat. Yeah. I would say it was a cross between gravy, <laughs> bit of chocolate. That's not a bad start. Yeah, gavy, chocolate and creosote maybe. Hmm. Yeah, I wouldn't drink it for pleasure. No, okay. it's, it's it's got that usual imperial porter sweetness. It's it's the equivalent of barley wine, isn't it? We're right. Just, well, we're just... it's funny you should say that because I've got a triple carmelier, which is some kind of Belgian joke beer to trap <laughs> Englishmen into being foolish, and uh, it's eight point four percent. It's by Bostiel's Brewery. As you may have heard, I already had a quick swig because it, it bubbled over the top when I took the top off and is now all over my desk and I ain't got a cloth. So I've just foolishly wiped it up with my hand and on my pants. So my pants stink of bad beer now. But here we go. And I don't want to offend anybody Belgian or any Belgian beer enthusiast hipsters, but I'm going to go in now. Okay, it tastes like Kapaki 9. Yeah. <laughs> Which is? It, it might be in a fancy bottle, but it tastes like Kapaki 9. Which is... It's like the modern equivalent of Tenant's Super Strength. 
in that it's, it, it's favoured of people who mm. um, have a limited amount of cash and need to get as shit first as possible as fast as possible. Kind of like us back in the day when we only had so much money. So we used to get a two litre bottle of carbon white and four cans of a boom and mix it up and drink it as fast as possible in order to get the maximum bang for our buck. Although that might be me and Stevie Mac, not me and you. I can't remember. Yeah, we used to drink Sheridan's, if I remember rightly. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> as you do. Yeah, but to be to be fair, we drank the Sheridans because we thought it made it look sophisticated. And what, After what the we were really eighteen Arangi boom. Yeah, what we were really doing was hasted in my plunge onwards into diabetes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, but you know, looking back, great days. <laughs> well, you know, I wonder, I won't have it any other way. No, uh, no. right. So w- while I grimace my way through this, this of course is a music show, um, and of course you and Neil, friend of the show, Neil. And Patreon, of course, and yep. Neil, who helped me out a lot with the sound early on, had your own band back in the day. We did, yeah. yeah giant. Camp. We had uh, we had three iterations of the band. I would say mm. Mm. we had the the whole version. Yeah, we had London version one, and then London version two. Yeah, started in the nineties in the heady days of tinny indie rock. Yep. And uh, carried on till probably two thousand four five, mm. yeah. when I I had a child and realised the combination of having to have a job and a child, yeah, and living in London wasn't really compatible with playing toilets to four people and a dog. <laughs> Much as you know, the the glamour was there, obviously, you know, yeah. When we, you know, got ourselves ready, you know, travelled across London, and yeah, there was more in the band than there was in the audience. It was time to maybe take stock. Yeah, think, I do know. remember those heady days of having just about every mate I had was in a band of some description, and of course there were all those like you know classic Adelphi whole whole bands like uh, oh god, who was there? Those Lithium Joe. Yeah, um, the thing's uh, Space Maid. Space Maid, yep. Chris Black, of course, old mate of mine in Space Maid. Was oh, he? Oh, yeah, right, okay. yeah, yeah. Just got back in touch with him on Twitter, funnily enough, very recently. Oh. Yeah, yeah, good mates with Chris back in the day. They all used to live in a, a house down Park Grove that I spent many, many entertaining evenings in, um, you know, getting up to no good for a variety of reasons. And actually, uh, it was Chris Black, I don't know if you remember, but... I actually recorded some Depeche Mode cover versions way oh, back in the yeah, day that yeah. I used to have on a C90 cassette. So I did some singing <laughs> for a Depeche Mode cover or two. And uh, yeah, it was Chris Black who did all the sequencing and he was the keyboard whiz who was in Space Med. So Chris Black, the drummer in Space Med, was terrific with keyboards. And oh God, God yeah, there was loads, weren't there? There was loads. Yeah, yeah, it was. Um, I mean, the thing is with Adelphi, the, the, the quality control was quite low, wasn't it? So if you had some amps and and some drums not necessarily drums but if you had some equipment and you could play for more than 10 minutes you got a gig really didn't you yeah and of course because i used to knock about with all them lot when i was a teenager and i was always in in pubs watching my mates bands by the time we became friends like you me and neil yeah and, um, and robber hello robber if you're listening yeah. um I kind of got to that point where if my mates were in bands, I didn't go to see them in the pub. And I think I think I knew you lot for about three years before I ever ventured out to see you. And I remember, yeah, and um, 
I hope this isn't a painful memory for you and you probably won't remember it at all. But I do remember being the only person in the audience when you played a gig at the Lamp. <laughs> oh, no, I think that's probably the, the greatest gig we had. So, somebody said, um, oh, do you, do you want to play New Year's Day? All right, so you think at the time, you know, gigs were quite hard to come by. It's like, well, they weren't, but it was like, yeah, you headline New Year's Day. And we didn't really think about it and went, oh, yeah, that would be brilliant. Then realise it's New Year's Day. It's like he was going to come out on New Year's Day. So we played this gig, and in the end, we thought, "Oh, we'll just play loads of comedy covers." Yeah. I don't mean comedy, but covers anyway. And I think there was four people in. One of them was my sister. And halfway through the set, the dog that lived at the venue just basically came on stage and fell asleep. <laughs> it was like that's when you know you've hit it. Yeah, yeah, but you know what? You you showed some real commitment, and you 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 powered on through all that, and even carried on when you all moved to London. Yeah, so we all moved to London specifically to be in the bank. So we did uh, we did a few gigs, and we had a few record companies ring up, and and it was always, can you get down to London? So we did a couple of couple of shows, and in the end, it was, oh, we'll just move to London. What, yeah. What's the worst that can happen? Yeah, so it was good. We. Moved to London, we played a lot, we're doing all right. And then we had the usual tragedies of you know, family issues and all that kind of stuff. And we kind of split up for about six, seven months and then it all fell apart and then we rebuilt the band. Yeah. But yeah, it was just the usual thing of being in an unsigned band is always the same, isn't it? You just scrabble around for small victories in life, don't you? And they're generally mostly awful. <laughs> Now, I've been to see, at the very least, two of my friends banned in the Dublin Castle yeah. um, in London, and, and again, been one of only three or four people, and I can't remember whether it was Giant Kind or Rich Baker and Lee's band, whether called Motorcade by that point, I can't remember, but whenever, whenever they played in London, they had one guy who was like a super fan, who, <laughs> whenever they started playing, even if he was the only person there, he would get up and just walk up and stand a foot from the stage and stare and just stare at the band nodding his head with a look of ecstasy on his face. And I can't remember whether that was you. No, that was us. No. Because, because we're in London, we, we kind of ended up, you, you meet new people, don't you? And it's, yeah. you end up with a new audience almost. Cause as you said, most, most of the time you're in inside band, your mates come and see you, don't they? Or your girlfriends or your girlfriend's mates. And it's like, Oh yeah, we're mates of the band. And then eventually they realize it's really quite tedious and boring. Yeah. And uh, being in London, nobody knew us, so it's pretty good. Yeah. We got, we, we it got does a sound a little bit like um, the UK wrestling event where the Grimsby wrestlers turned up and were half of the audience, but you didn't realise until they invaded the ring. Like the music yeah, equivalent of that. You know, yeah, the, pretty much. The girlfriends and the, and the mates from other bands. It's just, you know, unfortunately, the mates from other bands don't rush the stage and suplex you through the drum kit, which might have made it more exciting. Well, they did occasionally, but, you know, that was just like... You know, if you borrowed the ramp or something, so we ended up we got like one record out in the in the shop, so we got some radio play. The best thing we did, we got a plugger who who basically got us loads of radio play, which was cool. So what and were your inspirations back in the day? It was the usual nonsense. I think you kind of go through periods. Like when we first started playing, because I, I was I didn't start singing until I was about nineteen, so I was always too shy. So mm. it was. But we first started playing like Patty Smith and Violent Femmes and stuff like that. Yeah. And then I was into REM and then 
as, as you get older, you kind of get into loads of different stuff, don't you? So yeah. by the time I was in London and the, the song that you play at the beginning of the show, yeah. which is called Baptism, that was recorded in London and we kind of getting into using a few sequencers and we got a new guitarist with us as well. So there was five of us and we had a studio for about a year. Our favourite bands were stuff like Pavement and Deus and lots of indie stuff. Got quite into the Beach Boys, you know, it's usual indie boy stuff really. But it was also into like a bit of techno and Underworld and and then Neil and Carl got super into, you know, more the dance scene stuff really. Yeah. But luckily we never did a soup dragons and started putting on, you know, comedy drum beats and going, Oh yeah, we've always been a dance band. Yeah. Like yeah. loads of indie critical band. era. Yeah. And then yeah, after that we kind of because Carl, the drummer's dad, died and he moved back up north for about a year. Yeah. So we didn't do anything for a year really. And then Neil moved up north as well. So we were kind of, I started up writing some stuff with another guy called yeah. Dave. And then we ended up, Carl came back and we ended up just setting up a kind of a second band, really. Yeah. And we ended up with a Canadian drummer. When we started playing, then it was a bit more acoustic y, not totally tedious acoustic stuff, but it was more, um, I got quite into low. And so it's, we kind of, low and tool were kind of our, um, <laughs> kind of our touch points at one point with a bit of bright eyes thrown in and it was bright eyes cool. I love Watership Town <laughs> yeah that one so what's the story behind the Breakfast in the Ruins track <clears throat> well the title's cool isn't it so mm. if you're writing lyrics I wrote all the lyrics as soon as you read something like Breakfast in the Ruins before I even read the book I yeah. was like it kind of conjures up quite a cool image doesn't it yeah it does and then Basically, the entire song is based on my interpretation of the end of the world, but based on carrying up the Kyber at the end. <laughs> so, so the whole thing was that carrying up the Kyber, the bit where they're just all having the meal, yeah. you know, the, the upper class officers and everything, and they're all getting bombed and yeah. they carry on eating. I just thought that was a perfect metaphor for England. We laugh about how lame a lot of the Carry On movies were, and and you know, and how they yeah. are okay, kind of part of um, of, of British were, culture. Mrs. You know, sex yeah. of Jim Dale and Barbara Windsor having her shirt pulled off and all that nonsense. But carrying up the Kyber is special. There's, oh, yeah, it's, it's there's two scenes in in the in the Carry On series that really sum up. Britain perfectly, and one is the, the the banquet at the end of carrying up the Khyber, and the other one is carrying at your convenience where they all go on strike because somebody asks a beader fitter to fit a tap, <laughs> and then after they've all gone on strike, they all go to the seaside and it becomes a sex comedy chase around the seaside, and it's just perfect yeah. encapsulations of of how ridiculous Britain was at the time. Amazing. Yeah, and I th- yeah, and I think so. The carry on the caliber thing was like, okay, so you know, we're, we've as as our age, we're just you know, we're, we're brought up with nuclear war, weren't we, as the uh, the biggie? Yeah. And then it was like, let's drop in AIDS as another uh, another winner. Yeah. And then we had Thatcher and mm-hmm. unemployment, and it's got you, you know, you kind of brought up with all these triple whammies, aren't you? And it's kind of right. Okay, and you still got that British 
stiff upper lip bullshit, haven't you? Yeah. Oh, we're British, we've got the empire. And I just remember just thinking, if the world was, was going to end, we'd still be, you know, pretty much having our full Englishes just as the so. nuclear bomb goes off, aren't we? Yeah. You know, drinking out bitter, blah, blah, and complaining about the coldness of the beans or something. So that's the whole sub. If the bomb was about to drop and, and the balloon's about to go up, I think probably eating a fry up and drinking a beer, you know, okay, maybe a couple of other things if you could fit them into those five minutes. Yeah. You know, that we, that we can't mention because they're too rude. No, pizzas. Pizzas, yeah. Um, I, th- I think would would be absolutely spot on, provided it wasn't triple Carmelier. I mean, I'm, I'm halfway through the gonzo now and it's kind of sitting quite heavy, to yeah. be honest. Back to Breakfast in the Ruins, the song. So, you know, what was your process? Did you write the lyrics and then approach one of the band and say, let's put some music to this, or how did it work? What we always used to do, so I either wrote with Carl or Dave or Neil or whatever, and it was lyrics first, and we fit the music around the yeah. lyrics. But Breakfast in the Ruins, Carl basically recorded everything on it, including guitar, drums, first time he'd ever done it. And he had some vocals on it, and I heard it, and I said, oh, I can put some over that. So yeah. I basically got the bus to Cleethorpes, went to a seaside studio and just recorded it. I just sang it on the way on a Walkman and yeah. thought, oh, that'll fit. Yeah. And, yeah, we just recorded it. Yeah. It's probably the first time me and Carl had written anything together. Yeah. 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 So lyrics were written. Because I always had a book of lyrics and just try to fit it to that song, and it worked really well. Yeah. And then when we we re-recorded it, we kind of changed a few of the lyrics, but we played it quite a bit uh, on stage. It was good. So the one I'm going to put at the end of this show, which version is that? That's the 1992 version. Blimey. I know. It's ridiculous, isn't it? The, the weird thing is, it's kind of... In in the olden days, you used to like spend a, a tenner an hour in a crap studio and watch your money just like piss down the you know just just watch it just go as like you're listening to the drums for five hours going that's cost fifty quid yeah and then uh, because you're the singer at the end you get like ten minutes yeah so it's generally oh man, yeah yeah so this version is yeah the really old version well and yeah, I don't sound I like appreciate that anymore. Your- Letting me use it to play out the show. Yeah, it's cool. It's good. It's quite interesting hearing baptism again. So it does sound quite good. That was um, used on Channel Four documentary as well. Right. So yeah. What was it? What so was we had, documentary. It was a documentary about the craze. <laughs> no way. So <laughs> one of one of my mates in London, he he worked for Channel Four as a an editor, yeah. and he he had to do the music for it. And he picked loads of really shit music. He had yeah. like screwdriver on and stuff like that. So he asked me to get some music together. And part of it, we he played Baptism yeah. over some of the credits. And it had, did a bit of curation to go with the, some of the stuff, which was yeah. good. And then we had, we had one of the other songs on a film, an indie film, which was really, yeah. I'll say no more, but it was on there. Oh, I've got to seek it out now. Um, so, of course, you know, the and whenever I open up one of the shows with, I don't know, some spooky reading or something like that, that's the longer intro to baptism, isn't it, with all the spooky noises? It is, yeah. So we when we played that live, we always started 
we usually started the gig with it and mm-hmm. that sequencer goes on for we used to play it for about five or ten minutes and then come on well of course the, the closing music for the show has been has been giant kind all the way as well which i think is a cover version oh yeah yeah that's a low song right so yeah we recorded that in neil's bedroom we did a weird kind of our interpretation of it the low are one of my favorite bands there are three mormons from <laughs> where are they from I want to say Utah, but I don't think they are. They mm. basically do slow car stuff. Are they as good as the Utah Saints? I would say they were different. <laughs> you know, I don't think you can compare the two. Oh, cool, man. Well, it's, it's, thanks for letting us uh, use it to play out the show. I say us, I mean me, and I mean you. Thanks for letting yeah, us, yeah. including you, yeah. use it to play out the show. <laughs> um. <laughs> and I'm still waiting for my royalties check as well. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's yeah. been disappointing. On the, subjects of, on the subjects of that, uh, very quickly, the TV show, I got a 50 quid check from Channel 4. No way. Yeah. Spent did you, did you it. Did so it or frame it? Yeah, I was, I was skint, mate. It was either that or live on lard butties for a week. So I think it was that 50 quid got spent. Great right. days. Well, thanks again. And thanks for encouraging me to drink some truly awful Kapaki 9 clone beer. Um, but we'll catch up again soon for the Night of the Swords Part 3. We will. Cheers, Cheers Joe. Thanks to Ian for being such a great co-host on the show, our first foray into the sphere of Moorcock music. We'll hopefully catch up again and look at some stuff in some more detail. And in the meantime, I heartily recommend Ian's biography of Hawkwind, Sonic Assassins. It's available now in its revised and updated version, Care of Lumoni Press. As discussed with Loz, the giant can number Breakfast in the Ruins will play us out at the close of the show. Meanwhile though, it's now time to thank our chaos engineers, out there platting the stuff of the grey fees and keeping the singularity at bay. Andrew Cicluna, Andrew Van Ness, Fred, Dave, Jim, John Lays, John Watt, Nelbert, Simon Perrins, Robbo, Malpertwee, and Ben. And to our Jugaderos over at the Terminal Cafe, Clarky, Craig, Loz, Matt, Randall, Steve, Tom, Ian, Mark, and Alex. And of course, to our patron demons, Master Piconti, supporter extraordinaire, brute of Lashmas trying to sell him his home recorded cassette of sea shanties. We may have to do a review show on that further down the line. To Lord Norman, Baker on the Rocks, hypnotised by the music of the spheres, and as a result getting his balance of flour, sugar, and the souls of his vanquished adversaries completely wrong. And to the lapsed gamer, no longer quite so lapsed, but nevertheless looking to score some new dice that will manifest across all seven ghost worlds at once. And to Dread Mortman, still caged and stuffing her ears with hell broccoli to drown out the cries of anguish as Ian Beale realises his calendar is no longer the absolute Christmas shizzle. And to Sir Neil of Burton, the Destiny Knight, busy at his easel creating baffling images that balance exquisite perfection with depictions of the yellow snow of the seventeen cities of the lower off Moo. And last, but not least, to Robert Paragraphus Pandemonium Macmillan. He's currently working on how he can set his book of Bob Dylan's songs as haiku to the music of a billion wailing supplicants, victims of the famous, or should I say infamous, 55 wiggles of the temple of the Sufus Prime.
Right, that's about it from me for now. The Journal of Gerard Arthur Connolly is on a mid-season break. In other words, I've knocked out a few shows faster than I could get it written, but it will return soon with an all-new score. Before I go, don't forget you can follow and gab with us on Twitter and Instagram with the handle at Breakfast Ruins. You can email us at breakfastruins at outlook.com. The blog is at breakfastintheruins.com. We have our Patreon page too. We're out there on most podcatchers. If you have a favourite and we're not on it, drop me a line and I'll see what I can do about it. But in the meantime, stay safe and I'll see you soon on the Moonbeam Roads. A near a brink behind this chair A blank abyss, it's moving It's crumbling I think I can ignore this Chain of hands to stop the falling.